The obstetricians observed that there is a very high incidence of very deformed babies, babies being born with no brains, with spina bifida, without arms, with gross congenital deformities. So much. So that the obstetricians have told the women in Basra to stop having babies. This war burned up the resources that we could have used um, to prevent climate catastrophe. With the three trillion dollars that we spent on that war, and we're not really done yet, we could have funded a crash program to convert our economy to run on clean energy and clean transportation, and also help the rest of the world to uh, make the same kind of transition. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and on today's show, we have voices from day two of the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War. The tribunal was sponsored by Code Pink December 1st and 2nd, 2016, here in Washington, D.C., at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. On our last show, we featured voices from the first day of the tribunal, which focused on the lies used to invade Iraq in 2003 lies, war crimes, and other violations of international law that killed, injured, and displaced millions of Iraqis and destroyed their country. Day two, featured on today's show, focused on the costs of the invasion. In addition to the $5 trillion in U.S. Treasure wasted on the illegal war, the additional costs to the people and land of Iraq, ongoing human costs to the invading country, the United States, costs to the planet, and so much more. Participants call for truth and accountability, because to this day, no one has been held accountable as the United States continues to make war in Iraq throughout the Middle East and builds up arms and soldiers on the border of Russia. Naji Ali is a professor and studies the impact that this illegal war has had on women um, on the ground in Iraq and in the diaspora. Um, my name is Nadia Ali. I'm a professor of gender studies at SOAS, University of London. I'm also a feminist activist. I'm a founding member of Act Together, Women's Action for Iraq. And over the last 15 years, I've been trying to document the impact of the Ba'ath regime, um, sanctions, and more recently, the invasion and occupation on women and gender relations in Iraq. And over the years, I've talked to hundreds of Iraqi women, and I have to say that one of the sort of forgotten stories, the costs of war, um, is the impact it had on women. I mean, in terms of security, the situation is much worse. In terms of gender-based violence, starting with domestic violence, rape, trafficking, forced marriages, children, child marriages, we hear only about ISIS and, uh, you know, the terrible atrocities, uh, particularly in relation to the Ezidi women. But what we don't hear is that really since 2003, Iraqi women have been subject to various forms of gender-based violence at the hands of 
government forces at the hands of those opposed to the government, uh, occupation forces including the U.S. Uh, Army and the British Army. And so there has been a systematic turning of the blind, uh, turning a blind eye towards the various forms of gender-based violence. In addition, um, there's a very, very large percentage of female-headed households, a very, very large percentage of widows, and those are really struggling economically. And while, uh, you know, prior to the invasion, of course, during the sanctions period, already Iraqi society was suffering economically. Uh, but prior to that, Iraqi women were very much involved in the labor force. But now a much smaller percentage of women are actually active in the labor force. Uh, unemployment is a big issue. Um, and just sort of trying to have access to basic services, whether it is clean water or electricity, it's really difficult, especially for the many internally displaced Iraqis. And then finally, in terms of political participation, I mean, women's voices have been systematically sidelined. You know, it's, uh, women are not involved in the decision-making, although officially there is a quota enshrined in the Iraqi constitution that sa says that 20%, uh, sorry, 25% of all representatives should be women, uh, but also often it's not even implemented. You know, despite the fact that, of course, the majority of Iraqis, including women, are very happy for the regime of Saddam Hussein to fall. But we have to really recognize that in terms of their everyday lives, in terms of security, in terms of their mobility, in terms of their dress codes, things have really taken a, a, a turn for the worse. And there has been an incredible shift towards social conservatism, which has particularly impacted on women. Uh, young women are very much uh, controlled in terms of where they can go, what they should wear, their friendships. So it's a much, much stricter and more conservative society than it used to be. I have been documenting this both as an academic and I've written several uh, books about the history of Iraqi women and also the impact of the invasion and the occupation. Um, as I said, I'm also an activist and so I've actually worked with many Iraqi women's rights organizations over the years trying to support them. And um, I should say that it's also very personal for me because I'm half Iraqi um, my father is Iraqi from Baghdad, my mother is German, and so I have family, I have um, relatives who have been killed. Um, and so this is, um, you know, it's academic, it's political, but it's also personal. And I'm, you know, feel very strongly that um, we need to make sure that the stories of Iraqi women are not forgotten. I'm Maria Santelli, I'm the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War. And in addition to speaking some words from my heart and my experience working with conscientious objectors, people who in the course of their military service have a crisis of conscience and seek discharge as conscientious objectors. In addition to, I would like to also share with you the words of Tony Garcia. I left Iraq in July 2003, not long after President Bush announced mission accomplished. While I was in Iraq, I never questioned my orders, because if you do that in war, you get people killed. Upon returning to the States and reflecting on my own experience, I realized how misled we have all been about this war. There was no clear mission. The reasons why we were there kept changing. First, we were told there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. Then they told us we were there to get rid of Saddam and fight terrorism. We captured Saddam, and we know that Iraq was not responsible for 9-11, but we're still there. 
Now they tell us we can't leave because we have to rebuild Iraq. As the invading and occupying power, the U.S. cannot be the force to rebuild the country we destroyed. And our sons and daughters are caught in the middle, dying every day. But not all wounds are visible. People who come back from war alive or with both arms and legs still have wounds that will always remain with them. I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. In 2005, I entered a PTSD program at the VA hospital in Topeka, Kansas. I was the first Iraq war veteran to finish the course. No one can say I am not a patriot. I served 24 years of active duty service, but it's time to bring the troops home. Tony wrote those words in 2006 on the third anniversary of the Iraq invasion. More than 10 years later, his words are still relevant, only he is no longer here to speak them himself. Tony died on Veterans Day 2010 after years of struggling with the trauma of his war experiences. The inevitability of violence and injustice is a myth a myth that persists at the hands of a media and government who choose to strengthen their own influence and harden their own power by sowing fear and division among our communities. My name is Camilo Mejia. I am an Iraq war veteran, resistor, and conscience objector. I served in the military from 1995 through 2010. My original a uh, military contract of eight years would have ended in the year 2003. It didn't because I was stop lost. Stop lost is um, an extraordinary power given to the commander in chief to hold um, members of the military in the military past their military commitment during times of national emergency or war. Uh, because of that, I, my, my contract was extended in order for me to be deployed to the Iraq war in 2003. And as a result of my refusal to return to my unit after a two-week furlough, I was court-martialed. And between the time served in jail and the appeals that followed my, uh, my conviction, I ended up staying in the military until 2010. When I first deployed to Iraq, my opposition to the war went from being political and abstract to being more personal and more heartfelt and more moral due to our first mission in Iraq, which was to run a prisoner of war camp in a place called Al-Assad, where we had occupied um, a former bunker of the Iraqi Air Force that had been turned into a detention facility. Um, our job was to basically guard prisoners and keep them sleep-deprived in order to prepare them for interrogations. The sleep deprivation occurred through a number of tactics that amounted to psychological torture and included mock executions through pistols and explosion-like sounds created with sledgehammers, um, also included sensory deprivation and mistreatment, basically. This was my first mission in Iraq, and it was the beginning of a transformation 
in my opposition to the Iraq war from abstract and political to an opposition grounded in uh, on the ground experience and my moral values. Uh, from the very beginning of our time in Iraq, it became clear that we were not there to follow the rules of uh, engagement or the laws of war, which would require members of the U.S. military to limit our, our uh, tactical and strategic military operations, places where there are no uh, high numbers of civilian. Um, rather than following those rules, we um, set up traffic control points and conducted patrols in highly civilian populated areas, such as mosques, schools, public plazas, markets, you name it, and we were there. And the, um, the result was that we killed mostly unarmed civilians in our firefights and, and, and patrols and various different interactions with members of the Iraqi resistance. For the first time, after seven months in the Middle East and five months in combat in Iraq, it became pretty clear there was no justification for all the things that we had done in, in Iraq Matthew Ho, uh, I served in the Iraq War in a variety of capacities. Every day of my life, I was involved with the Iraq War from its inception and its run-up in 2002 um, up until I went to Afghanistan in 2009. Um, every day in between those seven years, I worked on the Iraq War, whether I was in Iraq or I was in Washington, D.C., um, I worked at a variety of levels. I saw the war uh, from all aspects, uh, from senior levels. I was uh, with the Secretary of the Navy's office, uh, directly with the Secretary of the Navy's office in Washington, D.C. I worked for the Iraq Policy and Operations Group. Uh, so the reports I wrote on Iraq went directly to the Secretary of State, uh, to the Vice President, to the President, um, as well then to being a Marine officer in Iraq, uh, having uh, that uh, had taken part in combat, uh, leading Marines, uh, being part of an occupation force, um, as well as being a, uh, for lack of a better term, colonial administrator. I was part of a State Department team, and I was in charge of reconstruction. I was in charge of politics for four provinces in north-central Iraq. So I One of my uh, positions in Iraq, uh, the first time I was in Iraq in 2004-2005, I was in Tikrit, and I was part of a State Department team, and I was responsible for the reconstruction work uh, in four provinces. And I was a 31-year-old man at that point with not a lot of experience, particularly to have that degree of responsibility. But no one else ever showed up. They never staffed those government positions. They never, uh, when I say they, the United States government never provided the proper oversight to take care of that massive $16 billion reconstruction uh, program. I myself uh, was responsible for a number of programs, and many of those programs were done in cash. One program of mine that was done in cash, and when I mean cash, it was uh, vacuum-sealed $100 bills straight from the Federal Reserve, uh, was $50 million. Uh, the most I ever had in my possession at one time was $26 million in cash that I kept in my bedroom in two safes. I had an AK-47 and a small 32 caliber pistol I could put in my suit pocket. 
And uh, that was what I did. I paid for these construction projects. We tried to utilize these construction projects uh, in a manner that was going to help us win hearts and minds. This is the whole counterinsurgency uh, principle. Um, the notion that General Petraeus came up with counterinsurgency the years uh, later in the war was just a, a public relations stunt. Um, we were doing that type of work in, a, in Iraq uh, well before John Petraeus uh, became the darling uh, of uh, the media and uh, the American Congress. But what witnessed, though, was just a vast giveaway, just a vast uh, racket. The uh, legalized corruption that was available to American corporations in Iraq was just tremendous. Uh, the amount of money that they were able to collect, the billions and billions of dollars that were supposed to be utilized to make the lives of the Iraqi people better that just stayed in the United States, uh, you know, uh, uh, runs uh, into the double-digit billions. Uh, so you just had this um, this frenzied uh, uh, circumstance where there was almost no government oversight. Uh, corporations were allowed to do what they wanted to in Iraq. Of course, you had the excesses with the private security and everything too, but just the amount of money um, that was stolen from the Iraqi people, whether it was their money originally uh, because of money that had been seized by uh, the United Nations and, and uh, or whether it was a money appropriated by the U S Congress, the vast, vast majority of that just ended up in the pockets of American corporations. So um, you have uh, this, program that, again, runs $16 billion, that the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, uh, the United Nations, um, other uh, independent audits have found there's really no evidence of any successful work being done. But you have in the United States uh, thousands and thousands of people who now own second homes, who now drive BMWs, right, who, who have um, benefited from this mass expenditure of money. And the, the, the sickening thing about this, what makes it so grotesque, is, of course, underlying all that are the million dead Iraqis. So it really was. Um, I mean, uh, the, 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 this was a corporate giveaway. This was a, a racket um, unknown, I think, in, in the history of warfare in the way it became a bonanza for private business. Um, and again, this is all on top of the one million dead Iraqis, uh, the millions and millions of Iraqis who were forced from their homes, um, and the endless suffering that still goes on uh, today. Um, and so it's appropriate for this tribunal to call for uh, investigations, to call for uh, audits, uh, and to call for criminal penalties uh, against these men and women who orchestrated uh, this racket. Um, so, again, I want to thank uh, this People's Tribunal for this opportunity to speak about these issues. And thank you very much to Matthew Ho for his uh, description of what he did uh, in the U.S. military and also as a, as a U.S. State Department. And next we have Stacy Bannerman. Uh, Stacy is an advocate and author of Homefront 9-11, how Families of Veterans Are Wounded by Our Wars, which was published in 2015. She's also the author of When the War Came Home, the inside story of reservists and their families, they, and the families they leave behind. 
which was published in March of 2006. And she is the creator and executive producer and writer of Homefront 9-11, Military Family Monologues. Thank you very much for being here, Stacy. Well, when my Iraq War veteran husband strangled me to the point of unconsciousness, I thought I was the only one. I was not. A 2006 study found that over 80% of veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder had committed at least one act of violence in the previous year, nearly half being a severe act such as shooting, stabbing, or strangulation. A 2010 Army report noted a 177% increase in the number of soldiers who committed spouse or child abuse in the previous six years. When my friend Christy Huddleston was murdered by her Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran husband, who shot her and left her bleeding out on the kitchen floor while their 10-year-old son called 911. I thought she was the only one. She was not. According to the Pentagon, cases of child neglect, abuse, sexual assault, and murder in military families increased by 40% from 2009 to 2012. There have been many, many months when the casualty rate of military family members killed on the American home front has far exceeded the casualty rate of American service members killed on the Iraq war front. And a lot of those casualties were children. Military kids in North Carolina, which is home to Fort Bragg and Camp Lejeune, are twice as likely to die of severe abuse as civilian kids. And that is according to the North Carolina Child Advocacy Institute. The number of military children killed by their parents has more than doubled since the Iraq War began. But when 12-year-old Daniel Radens committed suicide by hanging during his father's second tour in Iraq, I thought he must be the only one, and he was not. Studies of California secondary school students revealed that nearly 18% of military kids had attempted suicide, more than double that of civilian youth. And by 2014, an estimated 1.5 million It's one-third of United States military kids had developed a mental health issue after the deployment of a parent or a sibling, and for the first time in U.S. history, there were more military children suffering the behavioral consequences of combat than men and women in uniform. Genetics are a key factor in the heritability of mental illness and susceptibility to addiction. In a random survey of adult children of combat vets with PTSD, more than 80% of those kids demonstrated hypervigilance. 65% began using alcohol during childhood and over half reported drug use. A report published 
by the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare revealed that suicide rates of children of male Vietnam veterans, most of whom served a single tour, the suicide rates of those male Vietnam veterans are triple that of civilian youth. Time will tell if multiple tours in Iraq raise that rate even higher for the children of Iraq war veterans. If this nation's moral compass has retained any magnetism whatsoever, the biological collateral damage of combat in the family members of veterans should point it toward ending endless wars. Accumulating evidence shows that America has sentenced the caregivers, children, and grandchildren of today's wounded warriors to sadder, sicker, shorter lives. After several years of caring for my 80% disabled Iraq vet, I was getting sicker and sicker. I was fighting one infection after another. And when I was hospitalized with a cellulitis infection so dangerous that doctors asked for my advance directive, I thought I was the only one, and I was not. When my caregiver friends kept getting diagnosed with cancer, I thought they were the only ones and they were not. Studies link chronic stress, caregiving, and PTSD to significantly shorten lifespans in both the veteran and the spouse. Research by Nobel laureate Elizabeth Blackburn found that female caregivers with very high stress levels have severely compromised immune systems and cellular damage, which is the shortening of the telomeres, equivalent to a decade of additional aging. Now, I used to say that the Iraq war was aging our military families and dog years. I meant it as a joke. And it turns out I was right. And it's not funny now. See, two years ago, two years ago, I had a husband. I had a home. I had a home. I had a home on some land that felt like heaven to me. I had a small herd of companion animals that were my surrogate children. I had a job helping my husband and other veterans. I had a really good credit rating and a combined household income of nearly $100,000. I had life. About a year ago, my now ex-husband was back on crystal meth and threatening me with an M4 semi-automatic weapon before trying to commit suicide by cop. I had to flee my home in terror, sacrificing everything I ever ever loved in this world just to stay alive. And while I was wandering lost on the streets of Southern Oregon, my identity was stolen by a crystal meth drug user that my husband got high with. And she destroyed my credit rating, costing me thousands of dollars. And in less than 90 days, I was robbed of my home, my husband, my job, my companion animals, my health care, my social and economic status, and finally my identity too. It was as though I didn't even exist. I am 
the collateral damage of America's war in Iraq. I don't know if there will be justice for me. And maybe today we can begin to find some truth and accountability. I also know, I believe, that there is a case for a class action on the behalf of the families of Iraq War veterans, earlier this year, Congress overrode the presidential veto of justice against sponsors of Terrorism Act. And that cleared families and survivors of the 9-11 attacks to sue governments for failing to prevent terrorism. If we are about quid pro quo, I believe that also provides the legal framework for me and hundreds of thousands of other families of Iraq War veterans to sue the United States government, members of Congress, and the State Department for failing to prevent George W. Bush and Dick Cheney from committing a sustained act of terrorism that illegally required our loved ones to serve in Iraq where they were injured or died. I have sustained major material and emotional damages and losses. And I am not the only one. And I support the Commission for Truth and Accountability as our last best hope for the families of the injured or killed Iraq vets. Those families have a freedom medal now where our soldiers used to be. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Mr. Averm, and you're listening to Voices from Day 2 of the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War. The tribunal was sponsored by Code Pink December 1st and 2nd, 2016, here in Washington, D.C., at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. You just heard Stacey Bannerman, and before her, David Ho, Carlos Mejia, Maria Santelli, and Naji Al-Ali at the top of the show. We'll be right back with more voices from the tribunal. Dr. Helen Caldicott, I'm a paediatrician. I've been deeply concerned about war of all varieties, killing of all varieties, because I took the Hippocratic Oath in my vacation and life is devoted to saving lives. I followed the Iraq war intensely, the shock and awe campaign. In fact, I wrote a book just before um, George Bush went into Iraq called the New Nuclear Danger, George Bush's Military-Industrial Complex, which talked a lot about what would happen in Iraq. Uh, interestingly, though, no one in America really wanted to read it because at that time America was still very nationalistic, patriotic because of 9-11, um, and they wanted to get revenge, and revenge was going to be on Iraq for no reason because Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 
the children died from a combination of war and the sanctions that were imposed on Iraq, and they starved. And Madeleine Albright, Madeleine not so bright, um, she was asked if she thought it was worth killing half a million children on television, and she said, yes, I think it was worth it. Uh, Condoleezza Rice talked about the smoking gun or the smoking mushroom cloud. I mean, they were evil, evil, evil to kill over a million people and create, I think, three to five million refugees. What, what they've done is turn Iraq into a slaughterhouse and turn tribe against tribe, um, replacing the Sunnis who were running the government with Saddam Hussein by the Shias, and the Shias are hated by the Sunnis, so the Sunnis created ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and hence we're in a frightful, dreadful mess, all orchestrated by America. The other thing America did was to use depleted uranium weapons, uranium-238 in Iraq, 360 tonnes in Basra, and huge amounts in Fallujah, and all over the place. So it conducted a nuclear war, and that area will remain polluted forevermore. Um, so much so that doctors in Basra, my colleagues, paediatricians, noticed a very large incidence of childhood cancer and leukaemia. And also the obstetricians observed that there is a very high incidence of very deformed babies, babies being born with no brains, with spina bifida, without arms, with gross congenital deformities, so much so that the obstetricians have told the women in Basra to stop having babies. But this goes on for the rest of time. Uranium is pyrophoric, so when the shell hits the tank, it burns. 80% of it burns, producing tiny aerosolized particles less than 5 microns in diameter, that can be inhaled into the terminal air passages of the lung where it's extremely carcinogenic. It's also in the water supply. It concentrates in the food and the milk. Um, children are 10 to 20 times more radiosensitive than adults. Little girls twice as sensitive as little boys and fetuses thousands of times more sensitive. Um, uranium is excreted through the kidneys. It can cause kidney cancer, bladder cancer, um, acute renal failure, um, it goes to the bone where it causes bone cancer and leukemia because it's a, it's a bone seeker like calcium. Um, so what America has done by using these dreadful ghastly weapons, they're using them in Libya now and in Yemen um, and in Syria, is condemning the all future generations in Iraq and the other countries where these weapons are used to cancer, leukemia, congenital diseases and genetic diseases because radiation damages the genes and the eggs and sperm causing um, diseases like diabetes and cystic fibrosis and phenylpetonuria and all sorts of others. There are 2,600 congenital diseases and these will all increase in frequency down the time track and I mean many generations. Um, I wrote an article for the New York Times about this um, many years ago, about 10 years ago, and they refused to publish it. They said, we are unable to publish this, and it was about the medical effects of uranium weapons. And 
who told them they shouldn't publish it and why did they go along with, obviously, the Pentagon. So the whole thing is a catastrophe, a war crime, evil, a nuclear war, and then there was the Coalition of the Willing, which included my country, Australia, and England and others who supported America in this wickedness and still do. So that's my summary as a physician, a paediatrician, um, and I'll leave it at that. Hello, I'm Miriam Pemberton, and I direct the Peace Economy Transitions Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. I want to focus for a minute on a particular moment of our history, namely the beginning of this century. At that point, the evidence had become quite clear that without concerted action by our world's nations, our planet was headed for climate change of catastrophic proportions, and that the U.S. had done the most of any nation to create this threat. So that's what we knew in the year 2000, and we know what happened then. 9-11 happened then, followed by the longest period of war in our history. You've been hearing about all the costs of that war, and I want to add one more, which is that this war burned up the resources that we could have used um, to prevent climate catastrophe. We also know um, who won the presidential election that year and then didn't become president. So Al Gore uh, went on to direct his life's work toward saving our planet from this existential threat. Uh, In his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, which won him the Nobel Peace Prize, he asked, should we prepare for other threats besides terrorists? Because we weren't. We were deep into the Iraq War, which was sucking up dollars and most of the bandwidth of public attention. With the $3 trillion that we spent on that war, and we're not really done yet, we could have funded a crash program to convert our economy to run on clean energy and clean transportation, and also help the rest of the world to uh, make the same kind of transition, and the rest of the world is going to be paying dearly for our profligate use of fossil fuels. Instead, we got a crash program to use military force to, among other things, protect American access to Middle East oil. And this war didn't just divert our attention from the urgency of the climate threat and waste the money that we could have used to deal with it. It actively increased the greenhouse gases that we were already sending into the atmosphere. Um, So in the Iraq war, we we burned about 16 gallons of oil per day per soldier, which amounted to about 3 million gallons per day. Compare that to World War II, we burned in the Iraq war 16 times um, as much oil per soldier as we were burning to conduct World War II. Since the height of the Iraq War, I've been documenting the trade-off between military security and climate security, and the ratio hovers about 30 to 1. So $30 spent on military force for every dollar we spend to prevent climate catastrophe. The U.S. military itself says that climate change is a growing and urgent threat to national security. Um, That is, it will be a shower of sparks igniting wars around the world over scarce water and land and precipitating new wars as refugees spill over national borders. What the military doesn't say is that, therefore, we ought to be looking at the overall balance of our security spending and shift resources away from military security toward 
climate security. So that's what I do in a new report. Um, it's called Combat Versus Climate. So if you Google just Combat Versus Climate, there it will be, and this is where I lay all of this out. I want to send my best wishes to everyone participating in this important tribunal. It will be, and will need to be, a cornerstone of the resistance. Thank you. Greetings. My name is Dana Vasali. I'm a biologist living and working in North Central Washington State in the United States. As a biologist, I'm interested in the impact of war on the natural environment, on plants, on wildlife, on ecosystems. I traveled to Iraq in 2003 and in 2004 to observe the impact of war on human society and went back in 2008 flying to the northern Iraqi city of Suleimania to work for an environmental group called Nature Iraq for a month and to explore the impact of war on the natural environment. The human cost to the Iraqi people of the two Gulf Wars has been extreme. At least three million people have died violent or unnatural deaths in that time if we include the deaths that occurred during the 13 years of sanctions between the two wars when there was not enough to eat, no medicine, polluted water, not much electricity. Five million Iraqi people have been wounded. More than four million Iraqis have become refugees. These numbers total one-third the entire nation of 33 million people. Iraqi society has largely been destroyed. Almost no one has a job because the economy lies in ruins. The literacy rate fell from 95% in 1989 to 20% today. Over 500 professors have been killed. Over 80% of Iraqis' educational institutions have been looted. Hunger is widespread. Staying alive is difficult. At least 100 Iraqis die every day right now from war-related violence. These are the natural fruits of war. War is conducted to destroy things. In the first Gulf War, the United States and its partners dropped 88,000 tons of bombs on Iraq, destroying both human infrastructure and the natural environment. During the sanctions, more than 280,000 sorties, which are individual flights, were flown by the United States over Iraq with targets at that time, including water purification plants, electrical plants, sewage treatment plants, and other critical human infrastructure. When I was in Basra in 2003, which was the last year of those 13 years of sanctions, because the second war started in March of 2003, we visited a water purification plant that has been destroyed by U.S. bombs on one of those sorties in 1999. Remember, the U.S. was not at war with Iraq at that time. And then it was rebuilt with the assistance of a, of a European humanitarian organization in 2002. Upon arrival in Suleimania, I was immediately struck by the lack of forests in northern Iraq, a region that was once 75% forested and it now is largely grassland. The environmental group Nature Iraq was attempting to begin monitoring the condition of the flora and fauna of that area and of the entire country, yet it could find no competent botanists or biologists because all such professionals have been killed in the pervasive violence following the U.S. invasion or forced to flee the country. I found a series of volumes on a shelf in the Nature Act offices in English called The Flora of Iraq. It was an almost complete catalog of all the plants of that country and how to identify them, developed by Kew Botanical Garden in London between 1960 and 1980. No one in the office, nor in the entire city, 
knew what those books were for or how to use them. The local botanist that I worked with there did not speak English, so he couldn't use the field guides. He was reduced to utilizing folk knowledge to identify plants. All the skilled scientists had been forced to flee due to the war, and the accumulated knowledge of, of the condition of the flora and fauna of Iraq had largely been lost. This is what war does. It kills people, degrades ecosystems, and destroys accumulated knowledge. Modern war is inevitably a form of genocide and of ecocide. It's a war against the earth. Any plan to go to war today should include the understanding that the destruction will include the ruination of natural systems that make human life possible. A paper by Professor Hassan al-Delfi that I found online at the University of Dubai attempts to enumerate the abuses to people and planet of the Iraq war. He lists environmental degradation caused by continuous bombing, poisoning Iraq's natural environment from toxic chemicals of war and radioactive uranium-tipped weapons, uh, both accidental and purposeful large oil spills that contaminate water and land, toxic smoke, acid rain from oil, and industrial fires, massive disruption of Iraq's fragile natural habitat, leading to probable extinction of endangered species, extreme deterioration of Iraq's education and healthcare systems, the destruction of Iraqi, Iraqi economy, and any means of livelihood for the Iraqi people, massive human, physical, and mental suffering. My name is Pratap Chatterjee, and I'm the executive director of CorpWatch. I've traveled to the Middle East and to Central Asia more than a dozen times since September 11, 2001, spending more than 16 months on the ground in the region to investigate military contractors. By far and away, the biggest by revenue and employee numbers was Halliburton of Houston, Texas. The CEO was once Dick Cheney, and he quit that job just before he became vice president of the United States under George Bush, Jr., Halliburton's former subsidiary, Kellogg, Brown & Root, often known as KBR, has grossed over $30 billion since it won a 10-year contract in late 2001 to supply U.S. troops in combat situations around the world. The company has been charged with providing soldiers with unchlorinated shower water and shoddy electrical work that caused a dozen soldiers to be electrocuted and killed. Take, for example, Staff Sergeant Christopher Lee Everett from Huntsville, Texas, who was killed in September 7, 2005, at Camp Takadam in Iraq, while he was power washing sand from the underside of a Humvee. On January 2, 2008, Staff Sergeant Ryan Masseth of Shayla Township in Pennsylvania was electrocuted to death while showering his barracks at the Radawaniya Palace Complex in Iraq. You must understand that since 9-11, we've undergone eight years of invasions and occupations under Bush, followed by eight years of covert wars and assassinations under Obama. And today, we are less secure than ever before. And as we begin perhaps the most uncertain and most dangerous period of U.S. history since World War II, it behooves us to take a look back and figure out why and how we embarked on this path. The Middle East looks likely to explode in coming years, and the fault lies with us for lighting that powder keg. We don't need Nuremberg trials, but we at least need a South African-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission in order to diffuse this anger, seek just solutions, and move forward. And exposing the profiteering from this war is perhaps one of the most important tasks that we can undertake. Next, we have Rachel Gilmer. Rachel Gilmer is currently the co-director of the Dream Defenders, a human rights organization based in Florida who also works on issues pertaining to policing, criminalization, and detention. 
Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. Um, It's really an honor to be here among so much courage and heart and wisdom. Um, So in August, um, the Dream Defenders, along with 50 other organizations, released the Vision for Black Lives, um, a platform for black liberation. Um, And among the demands in the platform, we called for a divestment from the exorbitant amount of money in this country that is spent on war and military operations, and instead to invest those funds into the health, employment, and education of our communities. Um, This is because we know and believe that there is a fundamental relationship between the oppression experienced by black people living in the U.S. and the oppression experienced by people around the world living under U.S. empire. We are connected through legacies of white supremacy and imperialism and neoliberal policies that advance corporate power at the expense of our communities. The Movement for Black Lives is an anti-war internationalist movement. We demand an end to the wars being waged in Iraq, throughout the Middle East, across the continent of Africa, in our own neighborhoods at home, and around the world. We demand a reinvestment in black communities domestically and reparations for the endless death and destruction that our people and all working class people have experienced at the hands of the corporate war machine. We recognize that the state's decision to invest in mass incarceration and policing over programs that build the futures of black people, like free public education, affordable housing, a federal jobs program, is directly tied to their same decision to invest in waging war and expanding U.S. military presence abroad. The U.S. government spends more resources criminalizing poor people, incarcerating poor people, paying corporations to destroy our communities, and then paying again, paying them again to build them back, than it does on actually creating policies and programs that advance our well-being. We demand an end to the profiteering off of our suffering, our death, and our destruction. The war in Iraq has led to the destabilization, first and foremost, of the Iraqi people, but it has also contributed to the destabilization of communities across the globe, including black, brown, and working-class people here in the U.S., Money that could be used to create jobs, build schools, and equip communities with the resources they need to thrive are instead being used to wage terror against our people here and around the world, all while fattening the wallets of U.S. corporations. Each day, the U.S. spends nearly $10 million in Iraq, totaling over $2 trillion since the start of the war, with no end in sight. In the years since September 11th and the establishment of the U.S.-driven global war on terror, U.S. military spending has increased 50%, with hundreds of billions of dollars having gone directly to private corporations. Each year, we spend nine times more money on war than we do on education, and 20 times more than we do on social security and unemployment programs. This is a choice, and it must be named. This choice means that instead of providing education and job opportunities to young people, we are sending them off to war and waging war against them through invasion, occupation, policing, and incarceration. My partner Steve, like many in our generation, joined the military because he could not afford college. His historically black college, Florida A&M University, saw major budgetary cuts under former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, who was leading the war in Florida against public education, black people, and the working class, while his brother was waging war in Afghanistan and Iraq. FAMU has also experienced major cuts federally under almost every presidential election and every presidential administration, including President Obama. These cuts have been targeted at HBCUs precisely because they are black. As a result, um, his public university lacked a strong financial aid program, and his single mother couldn't afford um, to support him either. So my partner went to the military because he felt like it was his only path forward. 
Going to war felt like a better gamble than a guaranteed life of poverty. Steve's story is not an exception, but the rule of Iraq-era veterans. The government's decision not to invest in the lives of working-class people, but instead in massive bailouts to Wall Street and major corporations, means that increasingly the working class, not the governing class, are sent to war. In fact, more poor people have gone and been killed in Iraq and Afghanistan than any wars prior. Working-class people should not have to kill to make corporations richer just so they can pay for college and maybe get a good job. Since September 11th, 4 million people have been killed in the Middle East, civilians, 250,000 of which were killed in Iraq. In addition, the U.S. has expanded Western colonial control over Africa in the name of fighting terrorism through the establishment of AFRICOM, killed thousands across the globe through the U.S. drone policy, and increased militarization of our communities domestically through surveillance, increased policing, and mass incarceration. Private corporations like G4S have been contracted by the state to incarcerate black people in the U.S., uphold apartheid in Palestine, guard Iraqi oil fields, and attack water protectors in defense of big oil and Standing Rock. We know our struggles are not exactly the same, but it should be very clear that we are fighting against the same systems. Today, we live in a society that always imagines itself at war with an ambiguous enemy that will always be there, so much so that we would rather spend resources killing people than building the futures of young people. The U.S. war machine, just like the prison machine, runs on lies about who we are, what our problems are, and what solutions should be put forward to address these problems. It has created a culture of violence that presumes that black and brown people are innately criminal and terrorists, that people ought to kill one another all the time, whether or not war is declared, and that death and incarceration are the only solutions to the problems we face. The war machine centers money-making over actual peacemaking. It turned Iraq into a fully privatized market, a playground for corporations to make money off of lies, invasion, death, occupation, and quote-unquote reconstruction of Iraqi communities. The post-9-11 war machine has bolstered a culture in which corporations are openly profiting off the destruction of black people and poor people. It happened in Iraq. It happened in Afghanistan. It happens at home, and we need to stop it. It's spreading. Throughout history, black and brown people have bravely and brilliantly been the driving force, pushing the U.S. towards the ideals it articulates but has never achieved. Today, we continue this legacy through courageously fighting to end the war against our people, repair harm, and attain the political and economic power necessary to determine our own destiny. We do this because we know another way is possible. The black radical tradition calls on us to build a broad-based left agenda rooted in ending imperialism, white supremacy, and capitalism. We will not win if our only call to unite is to end the war. We must equally be invested in building black, brown, and working-class communities here. We need a clear call for reinvestment. This is an opportunity for our various movements to come together under a single agenda. This is a fight against neoliberalism. This is a poor people's movement against the uber-rich, regardless of political party, that see us as collateral damage in their scheme to make billions. Donald Trump has at times presented himself as the anti-war, anti-interventionist, populist president for and by the people. It is clear that the neoliberal war-making of the Democratic Party is a total disaster. So instead, we have a fascist who claims to be against intervention. Trump has co-opted our language against intervention, even as we see arms company stocks rising since he became president-elect. This is really, really scary. We cannot let anti-war rhetoric be co-opted by a fascist. The only way we can defeat this fascism is by building a strong anti-war movement. 
One that sees wars being waged against our comrades around the world as connected to the wars being waged against working class people in the U.S. One that sees the expansion of policing and militarism against black people, immigrants, and working class folks as in the U.S. as connected to the expansion of military presence abroad. The time for status quo is over. An anti-war movement that does not engage black people locally is not enough. And a black liberation movement that is not loud and clear in its call to end imperialism is also not enough. This is not to say our struggles are exactly the same, again, but we recognize that we are struggling against the same systems and that we cannot break free from these systems if anyone around the world continues to suffer under them. So what will we do if Black Lives Matter is put on a terrorist watch list? What will we do if Trump follows through on his calls for mass deportations or the establishment of the Muslim registry? What are we all doing about Standing Rock? We live in the belly of the beast, and because of this, we bear a particular responsibility for what is happening around the world. There is no longer time to see our struggles in silos. We must work together to tear down U.S. empire. There is no excuse. Global liberation depends on it. Thank you. You've been listening to Voices from Day 2 of the People's Tribunal on the Iraq War. The tribunal was sponsored by Code Pink December 1st and 2nd, 2016 here in Washington, D.C. at the University of the District of Columbia Law School. You just heard Rachel Gilmer and before her, Pratap Chatterjee, Dana Vaselli, Miriam Pendleton, and Dr. Helen Caldicott at the bottom of the hour. On our last show, we featured voices from the first day of the tribunal, which focused on the lies used to invade Iraq in 2003 lies, war crimes, and other violations of international law that killed, injured, and displaced millions of Iraqis and destroyed their country. Today's show focused on the cost of the invasion. In addition to the $5 trillion in U.S. Treasury wasted on the illegal war, the additional cost to the people and land of Iraq, ongoing human cost to the invading country, the United States, cost to the planet, and so much more. Participants call for truth and accountability because to this day, no one has been held accountable as the United States continues to make war in Iraq, throughout the Middle East, and builds up arms and soldiers on the border of Russia. The Tribunal is an ongoing online project that can be reached and viewed in full at iraqtribunal.org. That's iraqtribunal.org. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, produced for WPFW. Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. You can find us online at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to this show and all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Rivera. Raise your voice. All power to the people. Peace. (laughs) 